Hi, and welcome to Where the White Coats Come Off. We are Katie and Beth, and we are pre-PA clinic and are here to help you get into PA school and then get through PA school. Today is part two of PA Christopher Madej. We hope you love this episode, but before we get into today's topic and part two, we want to tell you about something amazing. If you have a PA school interview coming up, you need to make sure that you are prepared to answer any question thrown your way. If you have an MMI or traditional interview or a mix of both interview types, are you ready to answer your interview questions in a way that highlights your strengths as a candidate and in a way that programs are looking for? You have worked so hard to land an interview, so make sure you are super prepared to have an outstanding result. We created an interview question workbook bundle that has MMI questions, traditional questions, and everything in between so that you go into your interview confident and knowing exactly what may be thrown your way. If you want to rock out your interview answers, get the bundle on our website, prepaclinic.com, or check out the link in the show notes. Now on to part two with Christopher Madej. Okay, so now let's say you jump to program director. Has that changed the way that you teach or the way that you view students or the way that you view PA education kind of from the, the top, uh, top seat there? Yes and no. I, again, I think that educators are, are, are born and not made. And at the same time, being a, pay, uh, being a student advocate is also something that is inherent. If you do not feel like you are there to serve the students, then it doesn't matter how good of an educator you might be or how good your presentations are, you're not going to be an effective educator. And so from my standpoint as a, as a program director, I want student advocates. I can teach anybody how to be a good teacher, but if there are constant issues with faculty arguing with students or poor teaching evaluations because the students say, oh, well, this particular faculty member never listens to us or doesn't do X, Y, and Z, then you're, you're not going to survive in education. So for me as a program director, that's what I look at. I look at somebody who, no matter what they do in preparing their courses or their interactions with the students, is all centered around their improvement then I know we're going to have a successful program. And, and, you know, when I think back to faculty that I have been taught by, my favorite faculty are the ones who were student advocates first and foremost. Um, and so through my program director lens, when I'm looking at program assessment and I'm looking at course evaluations, that's what I'm looking at. I'm looking at does this faculty member really have the student's best interest in mind in the activities that they're doing or are they just going through the motions giving the powerpoints not answering any questions the students are not doing well on the exams they're not opening their office to have the students come by to be able to review the exams or establishing that relationship and so that's kind of how i look at it in terms of teaching no it, it has not changed i'd still teach the same way that i did when i was uh, you know a, a Program, principal program faculty than I do as a program director. That, my, my persona in the classroom has not changed because that's where I get, that's where I get re, re-energized. That's where my battery, my battery gets, um, you know, gets full from. Um, I don't enjoy looking at spreadsheets and I don't <laughs> enjoy doing program analysis. I, I do, but not, not as much as I do, you know, going into a lab and teaching students how to do a lumbar puncture or a central line. Um, that's the part of the job that I really look forward to. And so it, it does it does change your, your outlook slightly. Um, but again, 
I, what I look forward to is being in the classroom with the students. And so everything that I do revolves around that. Yeah, I love that you mentioned the fact that, like, you know, we're there to serve the students because I do think sometimes people do can't or can, I guess, forget that. And, and switching directions a little bit, too, when, when we interview students and decide, like, hey, who do we want in our program? I look at students a very similar way. I think I can teach most people medicine. So if you, if you meet our basic requirements in order to apply, that means you probably have the critical thinking skills, you have the background, you have the experience, you have the desire, right, to go through this huge, long application process. Yep. And I feel like I can teach you medicine. But I look for things like compassion and actually caring about your patients and professionalism and communication skills and you know working in groups because I feel like those are the things that are harder to teach. So we can teach you, you know, how to look at a CBC and how to interpret a text x-ray, but we can't teach you to truly care about your patients or to be that compassionate provider if you don't kind of already model that behavior. And so I don't know if it's the same for you guys, but I really, those are kind of the soft skills as they call them, are things that are really important to us and that we really look for in our students. Because again, I feel like we can teach a lot of people medicine but in order to make an amazing provider and one who's, you know, caring and who really cares about their patient, they sort of have to have that, that compassion and that um, ability to relate and connect. And that's kind of what we look for. Do you guys find something similar? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I, when I go out on recruiting trips to, you know, various undergraduate institutions to, to pitch the program and I have students come up and say, you know, oh, I got an interview, you know, at this school you know, what are some things that you would ask? And I, and I always ask, I always tell them that interviewing at PA programs is, is as much you finding out if you're a good fit with them as they finding out if they're a good fit for you. Yes. And so it, it goes both ways. And so when you go in there, you look at, look at the faculty, ask them questions about, um, ways that they've interacted with students or what are some things that they do to support students through the process. You know, this is, I think, changed in the last decade where it used to be that, you know, faculty or programs would get you in, but it was your job to stay mm -hmm. and, you know, we're here to teach, but it's your job to learn. And I think it has completely flipped to our job is to support you through this process. And yes, we're going to teach you but our job is also to make sure that you have all the resources in place for you to be successful. And so a lot of that is that faculty. You want to look and say, you know, what's, you know, when you, when you're in that interview process, you look at them and say, what's, what's the number one strength in your program? And every single time a student asks me that the, my first response is our faculty. And I tell them that if a program does not mention their faculty in their strengths, well, then you have to question where they feel like, their strengths lie and is that something that is important to you and so when you're interviewing and you're looking at the program look and see the faculty interactions and and see if that's a consistent theme across like at my program here our our faculty are very tight um you know we have great faculty meetings we hang out outside of the program you know on conferences you know we go out and get drinks and all of that other stuff so it's not we're not just co-workers but we really genuinely enjoy being around each other and that is going to do nothing but bleed into the classroom to show the students what kind of a program that we are fostering here and making sure that they're comfortable and are going to be successful through that two-year program. 
Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, as you say, the way the faculty interact with each other will give you a big idea about the culture of the program. And so I think that is really important when students are interviewing because I say the same thing, you know, you need to make sure you're a good fit and then that we're a good fit for you because not every program is and that's totally fine. Every program has a different culture, has a different background, has a different type of student that they prefer. And every student, you know, is going to thrive better in a different environment. And so it really, really is important that they, they do make sure that this is a place they want to go and that they really enjoy the culture of the school and the values because it does vary greatly between institutions. So I think that's a really, really good point. And we always say, you know, match your background, your passions, your experience to the program by looking at their mission or their values or their even their prereqs. You know, the pre-requirements can give you a big idea about what the program values. And then for sure, look for that faculty interaction because I think, you know, I've been blessed that I've had really great coworkers, but I'm sure it's not the same everywhere. And so I think unhappy faculty, probably that will trickle down eventually to the students um, and then could cause yep. some discord there. You are 100% correct. That's the one of, one of the main things that I have seen in faculty over the years that are not successful, long-term successful as educators has to do with the fact that they're just not happy at work. And if they're not happy in the PA program, you know, yes, you can make the argument that it's a job and that nobody is truly happy in their job, although I think that's just kind of bunk. But our job is to support these, you know, however many students are in your program, in my program, there's 30, because that's that's my job. My job is to support them. However that is, whether it's open office hours and they need to come in and vent, you know, I've got a big jar of candy on my desk. <laughs> I tell them all the time that they just need to come in and grab a candy and sit yeah. down and just vent. That's what I'm here for. And so if you have that mentality, not only is it going to make your job easier and I argue a little bit more fun, but it also is going to allow those interactions with the students to really be more positive and beneficial and allows you to establish that relationship. You know, we talk about in the clinical arena where, you know, a therapeutic patient relationship goes a long way when you need to give them bad news or really counsel them on something they don't want to hear, like losing weight, increasing exercise and stopping smoking and whatnot. You can't do that in somebody that you just met off the street or, or have seen for three or four years that you just have not devoted the time into that relationship. It's going to fall on deaf ears and they're not going to listen to you. And so I spend that time, or my faculty spends that time, establishing those student relationships so that when there is an issue and we do need to sit down and actually have some you know, corrective measures, they know that it's coming from a place of mutual respect yes. and us trying to get them to improve so that they then immediately don't become defensive. They're open to the suggestions of, okay, they're here to tell me that I need to do better in this regard, but I know that they're behind me and are supporting me and not just being hypercritical. Yeah, yeah, because I think some students sometimes, because PA school is so hard, can get like, oh, they're always, you know, always ragging on me for this or for that or always correcting this. And, you know, it's one thing because a lot of students don't know what they need to know, right? I mean, I was the same way. I didn't know in clinical practice how this is all going to work out. But you're right, if you have that good relationship, it's easier to hear stuff like that, especially if you know it's not you know, we're not criticizing you, we're, we're helping you, kind of helping you change your thinking or change the thought process or something like that. And one of my favorite things is, is that that relationship continues after graduation. So, so many students come back and they want to adjunct or they want to do guest lectures or even just, you know, they, I get emails like, hey, I saw Kava Aquinas syndrome like in the office the other day and I thought about you, you know, that type of thing. And that to me yep. 
right there is like the best part of education. When they come back or they reach out to you on social media or you somehow reconnect and now you're colleagues and you can see all the amazing things that they're doing with their career. And uh, that's one of my favorite parts of education. Yeah, no, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. It's the time that you put into it is really going to pay dividends on the back end, but you've got to be vested in it in order for that to really blossom and see the fruits of your labor when they do either go to clinics or, you know, graduate and become colleagues and, you know, notify you or, or contact you several years later, um, then you know that you made that, that much of an impact. Yeah, for sure. And I'll still even, I've got students that are in specialties and I'll text them a question if I've got a question or something. So it's just nice to have that, um, to have that bank, but, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it works both ways. Um, so, okay, we talked a little bit about student success, like when they're in PA school, we talked a little bit about interview success, kind of what things to look for. We have a lot of pre-PA students um, who listen to our podcast, so students who are either applying, thinking about applying, PA's kind of their career path and they're not really sure yet. Do you have any kind of tips for those students who are maybe earlier in the PA process of things to look out for or tips to be successful? You know, I think it's, it, it is highly variable, obviously, you know, depending on what their trajectory in undergrad was. How many prerequisites do you have to take care of after you graduate, or are you able to do all of that while you're going through your undergraduate process? I think the main thing that I counsel pre-PA students on when they, you know, when they ask questions is one, making sure that you're lining things up across all of the programs that you're applying to. So each program is going to be a little bit different in some of their prerequisites. One of the beefs that I have with PA education in a nutshell is that we don't have consistent metrics yes um, so students are just constantly having to juggle four different program responsibilities which is a whole separate conversation but uh, you know i'll say listen you know like like for us for instance one of our one of the things that 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 will trip up students that apply to my program is that we require microbiology uh, medical terminology and anatomy and physiology to all be within five years of the caspus season Okay. So students that are applying now in 2021, all those had to, had to have been completed in 2016 or sooner. And so in students that might take a gap year, non-traditional work for a while, you know, I tell them, I say, go back and look and make sure that the programs that you're applying to don't have these weird rules because the last thing you want to do is pay yes. however much money it is per program in CASPA to apply to a program that you're going to automatically not be looked at because of, of one of those one of yes. those rules and so the first thing I tell them is just make sure that you have a map of what programs are you applying to what are their requirements whether that's a spreadsheet a piece of paper whatever but make sure that you're hitting all of those metrics that all of those programs are looking at so that when you do finally hit that send button in CASPA you know that you've satisfied all of those requirements I can't tell you how many students I've had over the years who have applied to my program and have sent emails after CASPA has closed that said, oh, I just wanted to update you with some of my clinical experience in the class that I just finished. And then we email them back and say, well, the class you just finished was a prerequisite that needed to be finished prior to submitting your CASPA application that is in bold capital letters at the top of the admissions pages on our website. And so I'm sorry, but you're, you, you can't be considered for this class welcome your application for next year and it sucks to have that conversation mm-hmm. with the student but there's only so far that we can guide you in looking at all of those requirements so you know the devil is always in the details so go to the admissions pages 
sometimes it's hard to get somebody on the phone just because a lot of programs are just stretched really thin yeah. with multiple responsibilities and we might not have a you know an admissions coordinator who you can call up and ask questions to maybe it's just a a program email and it takes a while for somebody to respond but everything's posted online you know to bring this full circle back to accreditation that's one of the accreditation standards we have to have things posted and visible on our websites when it comes to admissions and so go to those schools and make sure that you have all of that taken care of because the last thing you want to have to do is scramble in the last several weeks of the CASPA season trying to satisfy something that you thought you had taken care of but then realize this program that you're applying to yeah you didn't have this thing and now you're scrambling a lot of stress it's already stressful enough as it is there's no reason to borrow more stress by doing that so um, I think it all just comes down to organization. Every Most of the PA students that I have come across in the years that I've been doing this are motivated, are smart, have done well in school or and or have an insane amount of clinical experience doing something that is going to transition into the PA profession very, very well. And so the last thing that you want to see is just some weird technicality, you know, show up that completely trips you up so just really be meticulous in your organization process during your caspa season to make sure that you have all of those things met and that's my that's my number one thing yeah i think that's a great piece of advice i mean i've seen students who forget to pay their supplemental application fees or students who the same thing you know they thought oh i had to take anatomy within seven years of matriculation and they don't realize that matriculation is until you know next may and so you know their their courses are timed out and so we try to tell these students like listen these are published prereqs like if we say everybody's held to the standard we can't change it for you you know just you and not right. someone else and so you really do have to be organized and so Sometimes I think that kind of self-selects people out too, because we'll get some people super early in the process and they're like, I don't even know where to start. I don't know, you know, and then you ask them, well, have you started looking at programs and, you know, we looked at prereqs and then they look at that and they're like, never mind, like that's too much trouble. And so I think sometimes that self-selects people out too who don't have that organization or that quite desire to be a PA because it does feel like sometimes you have to jump through a lot of hoops because you're right, every program is different. Different prereqs, right. different testing, different start dates, different end dates, you know, supplementals. And so it can get overwhelming. So those students out there listening, just realize that we hear you and we totally understand. But again, you know, you just got to figure out, we always say that the most important part of the application process is finding the right schools, you know, finding the right schools that you want to apply to that match you, your background, because you're wasting your money if you're going to apply to a school that you are not qualified for and you don't meet their minimum because they can't accept you because you, everybody has to meet their minimum published requirements. And CASPA will take your money regardless of whether you're qualified for that <laughs> yes. program or not. So if you, don't, if you don't do your due diligence to look to make sure that you meet those minimum requirements, CASPA will take that money for them to send that application to the school. And the moment that that school is selected, you're going to get an email back from that program that says, I'm sorry, but you don't meet our minimum criteria. And you just basically flush that money down. Yes. It's already expensive enough as yes. it is, and so for to, to see people potentially wasting money because they missed a detail or didn't look on the website in this one spot, it, it's kind of heartbreaking because it, 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 you know you don't want financial you don't want finances to be a barrier, but they they obviously are. There's a lot of barriers to get into the PA profession, and and financial should not be one of them. But CASPA is what we use, and so don't want to throw money away just because you know sometimes we'll see students that'll say well you know 
our minimum GPA is a 3.0. And they'll say, well, you know, I had a 2.8. Uh, so I just figured I apply and maybe you guys would look at my application and, and give me a shot. And, I'd, you know, I'd meet them in, at, uh, you know, admissions sessions and I'll look at them and I'll say, I'm sorry, but we don't even see your application. Yes. If you don't meet our minimum criteria, CASPA doesn't even send it to us. So we don't even get an opportunity to look at you as a whole individual because CASPA has already pre-selected because those are variables that we put in. So if it literally says here's a minimum criteria. If you don't have that, there is no way. Yeah, and I try to stress this to students too. It's not like a job application where if you don't quite meet the five years, you know, you have three and a half years, you can submit it and they might look at it. It literally does not come across faculty desks. And so if, if your file doesn't get on our desks, your file can't be said yes for an interview. And if you don't get an interview, you can't get in. And so we do try to stress this to our students too, that again, if this program isn't right for you, there are other programs out there. There are programs that have, you know, lower GPA uh, requirements or programs that have less prereqs or more prereqs. There's programs that don't have any testing and there's programs that require two or three different tests, you know? So there's always a program out there right for you. And I just think that it can get overwhelming with the, you know, almost 300 programs out there now. Uh, but that's just right. really important to stress to the students. Don't pay for something. Don't pay if you're not going to meet the minimum requirements. Some programs you have to have your degree before you can even apply. Some you just have to have it before matriculation and it can be tricky, but you're right. Being organized is going to be really important. And to be honest, that's important to stay organized when you're in school too. So those skills kind of transcend just the application process. Right. And that's where it gets tricky with, with our program because we, we matriculate in January. So we have a very tight turnaround in terms of our CASPA season just ended September 1. We're going to be sending out interview um, invitations in the next, uh, actually tomorrow. We're going to interview everybody over like a two-week session in late September, early October. And then I make all my phone calls to you know tell people that they've gotten in. And then they start in January, three months later. So yeah. there are some programs that you'll apply in August, you know, summer the year before, but don't actually start the program until August of the next year. Right. So yeah, you can graduate in May of the following year. And as long as you update your you know, program that you get into, they'll still accept that. But for us, because we only have a three month turnaround time, everything's gotta be completely done by the time that you apply because we don't have time to mess around with, oh, well, I, I was gonna take this class, but then I didn't, right. I was this. And so for us, and, and that's unique to us and we recognize that. But if we're in the mix with some other programs where they are allowing for you know, some courses to be outstanding, you know, again, that you wouldn't meet what we need. You'd be fine for the other ones. And then it just goes back to your previous comment of make sure that the schools that you're looking at are a right fit for you and can meet all of what you're looking for and not just applying because, oh, you know, Memphis looks cool. I want to live there. So I'm going to apply to these programs when you haven't even really looked at their admissions page and, and see what their requirements are. Yeah, it's so true. And it's mostly like, hey, this program is close to home or, hey, I knew a PA who went here once. And we always say that's not the way to like choose where you're going to spend all the, you know, your tuition money. It should be a little bit more in depth than that, than, you know, closest geographical area or, hey, I know somebody from here. 
and I think that once students really start getting in the process that they are that they do realize that like hey I might have to go outside this two-hour radius or I you know, modified as schools in different states because they match me best and again I think that's a maturity thing too being able to say like listen I'm not going to be able to make these prereqs and if I wanted to get in this year the school isn't going to be right for me because I can't meet these this other school might be so again I think that's a maturity thing that comes with maturity and finishing school and just realizing that life happens and things change and and all that yeah and most and most programs will have information sessions mm-hmm. prior to either during CASPA season or prior to and so if it's a program that you're interested in you reach out you ask them if they have information sessions when's the next one going to be especially in, in COVID world now you know a lot of these have been are, are done virtually anyway yeah. which is nice because then you don't have to worry about if it's a school that is several hours away or in another state you can still attend these right and they will go through every single detail of what their process is and you know for an hour of your time we'll be able to figure out if that's a good program or not rather than not meeting anybody there potentially just paying the money in CASPA and then hoping that you get an interview there so it's a way for you as the applicant to get a good idea of what that program looks like prior to then jumping into the processes for that program which you know may or may not be a good fit for yeah, that's, I mean, that's so smart. An hour of your time, you're right, to figure out if this is the right fit, if you should spend your money, is definitely well worth it. And I think most programs now, even if they do have live, they also do the virtual information sessions too. And uh, I think that that, again, shows your interest, shows um, your desire to become a PA when you can you know carve out some time to do that. So that's a really great tip that those are going to be fantastic resources because they're the ones who you know know everything about their program and inside and out and can answer all those questions. And they're going to be the ones that are going to tell you here's where applicants trip up or you know this is where we can potentially have uh, you know issues or problems that have come up in the past. We just want to make sure that you guys are aware of this and can address it now in April or May of application year prior to, you know, September 1st when our CASPA season closes, right. it gives you plenty of time to be able to address those and not be surprised by, by a landmine. No, yeah, yeah, the, the frequently, what do they call it, frequent mistakes or whatever, frequently, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, and that's really good too because, again, you might be making them because it might have been something you didn't even notice on the website even though it was in bold <laughs> at the very top right. <laughs> or just something that has yeah. changed from cycle to cycle and you looked at it last cycle and don't realize that now instead of being recommended, something is actually required. So that's a that's a really good point. Yeah, yeah there's, there's, there's some things that come up like that where – like for, you know, like the math requirement is a classic example. Some programs just require three credit hours of uh, math and they say statistics is recommended. But then when they go through some cohorts and they talk to whoever teaches their evidence-based medicine or research methods section in their program, they come back and the feedback has been consistently, uh, your students just don't seem to have a good grasp on statistics. So I'm spending two class times talking about basic statistical analysis before I can get into the stuff that I really need to get into. And the program may come back and say, okay, well then, you know, should we just change our math requirement to statistics and just require it? And so you may be looking at this program for two or three years and be like, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. And then the year that you apply, you see that they change it to statistics. And you might not have caught that if you weren't staying up to date on the programs that you're applying to and reaching out prior to the CASPA season open up, because obviously these changes have to be in before the CASPA cycle opens. Yes. And... You can identify that by just being vi- 
vigilant and proactive in looking at the requirements so that, again, it's not something that you're doing at the very last minute to try to squeak in because you missed something in the fine print or a program just changed their requirements because they realized that there was a deficiency somewhere and they needed to do this in order to have an overall, you know, better product of students that come through their program. Yeah, and I think a lot of things, they start out as recommended, like we recommend this test, and then it eventually does either go away or becomes a requirement. So it is it does behoove students to uh, keep an eye on the programs that they're interested in because things can change from year to year. And with COVID, of course, things have changed uh, as well. More programs are accepting online labs and online classes because we understand you know, the hardship it is to get in-person classes. So things definitely change. Right. So if you're out there listening, definitely make sure you recheck the details of everything because we don't want you paying for a program if we're never going to see your file because that does not serve you. Exactly. If you are applying to school this year, you know, any and all information that you can get is always helpful because everybody looks through it from a slightly different perspective and a different lens. But a lot of programs, you know, struggle with the same things in terms of students making sure that they're meeting certain requirements. And I think that we definitely uncovered some of the potential pitfalls and the things that we've encountered over the years. And so hopefully those of you listening that are applying this year, this will give you an opportunity to go back, look over your stuff, make sure everything's good to go. And then you'll have a successful and hopefully positive application season. Well, excellent. If our listeners want to reach out to you to learn more about you and your podcasts, where can they go to get that information? So you can go to Twitter at PA underscore Madej. I'm also on Instagram at Paint Podcast. I've got a website called paintpodcast.com. You can check that out. Any of those platforms, you'll be able to message me, get in touch with me, and I'd be happy to answer any questions that uh, may come up. All right. And that's spelled P-A-I-N-E, correct? Correct. Yes. All right. So as always, we will have links in our show notes, but just want to thank you so much, Christopher, for sharing your wisdom, for being an amazing educator. And, you know, our students can head over to your podcast to learn all sorts of clinical scenarios and other things. We really appreciate you coming on to our podcast. And thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to Where the White Coats Come Off. We are so happy you found us. And we are so excited for your future as a PA. Don't forget to check out the show notes for our interview question bundle. That includes MMI format as well as traditional style interview questions. All so that you can be as prepared as possible to rock out your PA school interview. Check out the show notes for the link. Thanks and have a great day. We'll catch you next time.